Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building communities through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. Our guest today is Edward Field, back for his third interview. Edward is a 95-year-old gay World War II veteran navigator and renowned poet and author. Last time we spoke with Edward, we discussed the 50s and right up to the moment when he met his long-term partner, Neil. I'd like to take off from there today. I ought to first say something about the 50s. Uh, It was the worst decade in America that I recall. People talk now about uh, the Trump era, but it was it's really not repressive in that way. Of course, there are horrible things going on, turning back poor refugees, immigrants. I mean, my family was led into the country because we were we were immigrants and desperate. But the 50s, for some reason, after the war. The 50s went into complete repression of uh, thinking. Uh, They used the excuse of anti-communism, but it turned out to be anti-gay and the most vicious persecution. I knew people who had shock treatments, lobotomies for being gay, and it was true persecution. And thank God, I don't know how it ended, but you know, the beat poets came out of it. When Allen Ginsberg read his poem Howell in San Francisco, he was prosecuted for reading a poem. I don't think this generation could understand it. It was so terrible. And luckily, Lawrence Farlinghetti of the bookstore, famous bookstore of City, City Lights, went to court and, and overturned the conviction. And it kind of ended. The, the 50s sort of dwindled away. I never wanted to have a relationship with someone. My analysts, of course, my analysts also were trying to change me from being gay. You went into therapy and meant you wanted to go straight. So I never really wanted to have a relationship with somebody. With a guy. With, well, with a guy. In, in my world, in the bohemian world of arts, um, we never believed in bourgeois relationships and steady fidelity. <laughs> that all had to do with the bourgeoisie. And so I really resisted. I, I did not make the transition from gay to straight. It just didn't work. None of the therapies worked. So I was sort of on the loose, finally, quitting all my therapists I was working as a temporary typist because I had become an actor. I had a very short but interesting career as an actor in New York. People used to be able to do this. My acting teacher, Vera Solovyova, who was of the Moscow Art Theater, I was learning to be a method actor like Marlon Brando, said, if you want to be an actor, learn to type. And she was serious. That was the way you could earn enough money to live on. You could live on very little in New York City at that time. Rents in a part in cold water flats were dirt cheap and nothing cost very much. So while I made the rounds and studied with her and I had little jobs in summer theater and children's theater, I was doing temporary typing jobs, and I was working for an advertising agency on Lexington Avenue in the typing pool when the supervisor came around, and she sat a young man down next to me, 
And she said, I think you two will get along. And we didn't stop talking for the rest of the day. It was Neil, who was 27 years old from the Central Valley, California, grew up on a ranch. He had a cowboy body, which I liked. How old were you? I was 35, and I'd been through a lot since the war. I've been through a lot of therapies. Actually, I had quit all the terrible therapists, and I had a single th- I wasn't in group therapy anymore, which I'd been for years. I was uh, had a therapist who was uh, had been in show business. She sang uh, with the Weavers, and she also had her solo career, too. And she didn't mind me being gay. She didn't want me to be alone. And of course, I was scornful of relationships. But when I met Neil, oh, I just couldn't, we couldn't stop talking. And the supervisor quickly separated us. But it was too late by then. We had connected. And he had a cold water flat on West 47th Street in Hell's Kitchen. And very quickly, I moved in with him. I was living with an actor I had been acting with the summer before at the William Penn Playhouse in, outside of Pittsburgh. And I quickly moved out and moved in with Neil. We started this relationship that lasted 58 years, but it had many ups and downs. Well, not so many, but it had one major break. For 10 years, we were really very devoted to each other. And we didn't understand, I didn't understand, that he really needed more freedom. He himself was a very scheduled person who disciplined, who did his exercises every day and sat down and wrote. He was a writer, or wanted to be, and he wrote every morning. And then he got a temporary job at the Museum of Modern Art that allowed him to do that. So he could work in the morning on his writing and then go to work at the museum. And he liked three meals a day on time. And I was perfectly willing to cook for him. Me being the Jew, food was natural to me. And he being the Protestant, he was learning about food from me. So it was really quite quite comfortable. And I didn't mind. I screwed around all my life. I didn't care about giving up walking through the parks at night and picking people up. And being with Neil was much more important than that. And also, I like the discipline because I'm not a disciplined person. I'm sort of one. I just do things when I feel like it. I used to write my poems in the middle of the night if if they came to me. It didn't matter to me. Now I was going to bed at the same time every day, waking up with the alarm clock in the morning, and I sat down on my typewriter, too, when I wasn't on a temporary typing job. Were the two of you uh, monogamous for those 10 years? Yes. And in fact, I didn't really think that he needed experience, but gay liberation was breaking out all around us. This wasn't the 50s anymore. This was already the 60s. And my poetry career took off because I won a big prize, and I got a publisher for my first book. And I was getting a a lot of attention, not realizing that this was a problem to him. Because we'd go into a a room, say a party, a, a New York party, and everybody would scream, Edward Field, the poet, because I was a minor celebrity for a while. And poor Neil, he was gorgeous guy, 
and he was in my shadow. And I didn't realize that 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 was a big element. But for 10 years, we were very close. But then after about eight years, he started having seizures. One night, I woke up and he was having an epileptic seizure in bed next to me. And he bit his tongue at his lips. He bit his cheeks. It was horrible. And they couldn't find anything wrong with him when he went to the doctors. So he was on seizure control drugs after that. And then I spoke to him. I said, you know, I was psychologically oriented. He wasn't. He never thought of psychology. I said, Neil, um, what is bothering you? What is being repressed that is coming out this way? And he had to confess he was desperate to have sexual adventures. So I told him, okay, go out in the night, go out and do stuff. But I didn't, he wasn't a bar person. And he wasn't, um, he wasn't, didn't know about cruising. <laughs> New York, you just go out on the streets and somebody's trying to pick you up. I always had that experience. But he didn't really know how to do that. He was a very reserved. He had been sheltered from that. He hadn't been exposed to it. Oh, yeah, yes. But the thing is, I don't understand growing up in the, even in the farming district, there are farm workers. There's going to be somebody who wants to get a blowjob or <laughs> give you a blowjob or something's going to happen or in the highway rest stops. Everywhere I've driven in this country, highway rest stops are cruising. Not everyone at 16, 18 knows they want that. Well, in he did not. He did not know. He just lived a very conventional, he came from very conventional people. He has a sister who's very much like him. And they're just gorgeous. They're like from the moon, children from the moon who don't belong in that conventional world. Their parents were so straight-laced. Anyway, nobody ever made out with him. He never had a single experience. You were his first no, he had, when he grew up and left home, he went to Berkeley and started having an occasional affair with someone. And he had, he did have affairs before me, but very few, nothing like me. And of course, he made me tell me, tell him about my experience. And he was shocked. I had had so much experience. So what happened after he, so I, he went, the epileptic fits? Well, he... We went on together, but I kept urging him to to do do more. I said, be free, uh, but because he didn't know how to be free. So he went to Europe, and he sat in the plane. He sat next to a big, husky German guy who immediately decided to make out with him. And they spent the night. It was on Iceland Air, where you could spend the night in Iceland for $10, and they spent the night in the Loft Leader Hotel, and he had his had an affair. He was was mad about this guy, and he even went to Berlin, pursued in Berlin, where he found out this guy was not going to be. See, he wanted he wanted to be free, but he didn't know how to how to be. And so this guy was okay for sex, but he didn't want to be tied down to anybody. And Neil only understood making. Consecutive little affairs that lasted a while. He only saw it as a relationship. Yeah. So that didn't work. But I saw that I was in the way. And I went on a big poetry reading tour to California 
which was how I was making my living at the time. And when I came back, I went to Afghanistan. Uh, so we were essentially split. Now, you, think, you mentioned that to me before. What made you go to Afghanistan? In the dentist office, I uh, saw a National Geographic with a story about Afghanistan. And when I saw the pictures, I knew I wanted to go there. And it was the furthest place on earth to go. I figured that's a very good place to go to recover. Recover from l losing your oh, heart? Oh, I was broken. Yeah. Broken hearted losing him because he was everything to me. And uh, sex with him wasn't great. It didn't matter. I mean, he was the, he was everything I wanted. I left for Afghanistan and I was away. So we were broken up essentially two years. But while I was away, a doctor looked into his eyes and said he saw a brain tumor. See, the cause of the epileptic fits had not been located uh, because it had, I guess, the tumor had not grown enough to see. And so he went to the VA hospital and he had surgery and it left him blind. Taking the tumor out led to the blindness? Yes. It damaged the opt it was on the optic nerves, so he was blind. And meanwhile, I had come to Westbeth. I couldn't live with him because we weren't together anymore. For, for, for our audience, Westbeth is a artist community in the West Village in New York, where Edward still lives today. Yes, and it was a very. It was like when the village was going upscale. You couldn't get apartments anymore by then. So Westbeth took in from the village, all the people losing their apartments. And it offered a better alternative anyway to whatever you had. It was the old uh, General Electric laboratories where they invented sound movies and all kinds of things like that. So I moved into Westbeth, but I kept visiting him in the hospital. And when he got out of the hospital, he lived on his own quite well. He had a blind man and did very well. He could walk around the city with his white stick and he met other blind people, a blind group he went to. He really could get around, but he was it was not very good for him. I was going over and cooking for him because he needed good food. You know, I'm a Jewish mother, so I was going to cook for him. And then uh, gradually it became harder and harder for him to live on his own. Somebody who lived with him ripped him off badly, and it wasn't good. So he moved in with me in Westbeth. Was it apparent already that you were going to be partners again as opposed to just roommates? Or what is the difference? The main thing was that I had a new role. I was his seeing eye dog. I understand seeing eye dogs perfectly. The devotion they have, how they understand every vibration they get from their uh, blind master. And I became a sighted guide, a seeing eye dog. I did everything for him. And this was a whole new role for me. It was just as good as being his lover. I was his lover. I loved him. It didn't matter. I didn't care how we were together. Did you not have sex again or you did for a while? No, we did. We had sex once. And he said in a kind of joke, oh, well, going back to the old way. And I knew I wouldn't. So I, I, I didn't ever make a pass at him, but I wanted him to have sex. And as a blind man, he was limited in how he could connect. So I did help him. 
I helped them. We went to the baths. And I, I remember I was doing an anthology. So we went to San Francisco. I did an anthology of poetry called A Geography of Poets, which took poets from all parts of the country. And most anthologies are very limited. And so I found poets all over the country. I was on tour all the time and I met poets. So I did this anthology and I went to San Francisco to work on the West Coast. And I took Neil to the baths and in the showers and the dark rooms, I took his hands and I put them on somebody. He couldn't see them. <laughs> and he had, he had sex adventures. And I did that for years. We went to Europe. We ended up the baths all over Europe, and I always helped them connect. Were you able to take care of your own needs too? Yeah, and then I became, yes, I did. I didn't have affairs anymore. I had brief, nothing much. I really, I really became a masturbator. I, whack, I, I started whacking off and also whacking off over him. He's so gorgeous, and he tended to walk around naked. <laughs> Which was like having porn and like he was living porn. So I've always whacked off over him. And since he's dead, I whack off of his pictures. <laughs> I felt very satisfied. And I think being a, a seeing eye dog is one of the most satisfying things I could do. And of course, I had my career. I had, I had this wonderful career. I wrote for documentary films and won an Academy Award. I did all kinds of projects that were interesting. So I had my own life in that sense. We we really went all over Europe together, North Africa. I took them to the cosmos of North African cities. We just had a quite interesting creative life. Oh, and then, of course, when he went blind, he couldn't write anymore. He had been writing porn novels for $1,000 each for a company named Tower Midwood. At the Museum of Modern Art, where he worked, somebody said, Tower Midwood is looking for soft porn novels for $1,000 each. Oh, he was still cited then. And so he submitted an outline, and then he started turning out one after the other for this company on his own. He could, All gay? No, none. there was a lesbian novel about the women's prison on Greenwich Avenue. The others were all straight. It wasn't until he went blind and couldn't work anymore that I started helping him write. So we started writing together. And this was a big factor in our life together in the future years because I helped him write his own novels. I had never written a novel, a prose. I couldn't write prose. Uh, I was a poet. I helped him write a novel called Sticky Fingers that was published by Grove Press. And I'm sure the Stones saw it, took, read it, and took the title for their famous album, Sticky Fingers, which came out a, a year later. Grove Press was kind of an underground It was kind of, well, it was a big publisher, but it was also tried to be a little like a Gerodius in Paris who published porn novels underground. So they wanted to be everything. You wrote a book together, The Villagers? We, uh, we wrote first a novel called The Potency... He wrote a novel called The Potency Clinic that I helped him with because he couldn't really write alone. He was a good typist, so he could write the first draft. And so we kind of worked on it together at The Potency Clinic. It was taken up by a German publisher and published in many editions in Berlin as The Potence Clinic. Then Bob Wyatt of 
of one of the big paperback publishers saw it and asked us, would we write a novel about generations of a Greenwich Village family? And we said, submitted an outline. He, he approved it. And so we wrote our novel called Village. And it was quite a good success. Uh, it was on the Dalton bestseller list. And that we wrote really together in every way. It wasn't like his previous books of me helping with the sex scenes, for instance. He was never good with sex scenes, and I always helped him with sex. So we did have this life together when we went out walking. We went out walking all the time with his hand on my right shoulder. I was guiding him, and I would tell him curbs or whether he had a steps or any problem, I would tell him. And we also to discuss plots. So we wrote, we invented many plots. We did movie plots, novel plots. We did that for years and years and years. It was part of a, our work together. You mentioned when you showed me The Villager the first time we met that there, there was a need for info in that book about what it was like to be gay in New York in the village in the 1920s. And you looked for a long time to find someone alive who had been actively gay in that period and found such a person. Can you tell us what you learned from that guy about what his life was like in New York City in the village in the 1920s? Well, he told me uh, he had he was a little old man bent over and he hobbled in. In the 20s, this neighborhood where Westbeth is had an elevated train line going right through the building and going down to the Hudson Terminals in a sense, what would be called now, I guess, um, Tribeca. He told us about living under the L and having sex with the stevedores at the piers because it was all shipping in this neighborhood. Uh, we didn't get too much from him, but the thing is, we saw that gay life always went on. Really, the, the only time that gay life was truly repressed. Of course, there were always gay raids of police on gay bars. That was standard, but everybody laughed them off. The repression wasn't really serious until the 50s when they started doing lobotomies and you had to change. You just had to change and firing you from your jobs. Jobs were, it was terrible in universities, the way they fired gay professors. No, he did give us some information. We did a lot of research about the village and a lot we made up because you had to. We put the house on, on Perry Street. In It started in 1845. And we followed a family, the Endicotts, through four generations to uh, 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War. So we had war protesting at the end. <laughs> You could have used the townhouse that Jonathan Katz, the gay historian, and his family own on, I thought it was Perry Street. No, it's uh, Jane Street. Jane Street. He grew up there, and he never saw anything gay around him. Funny, funny. <laughs> it's very funny. I, well, it's like Neil in the country. There were lots of gay stuff going on in the bars. <laughs> uh, but uh, Jonathan Katz did have a wonderful uh, book uh, Gay history. What was it called? American gay history? No, something like that. I don't remember when we met him. He did. We did know him. Uh, did you and Neil? Did things change over the course of the fifty-eight years 
other than the fact that he was blind after he came back to you and you were seeing a dog? Was there much different about your life in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? No, we traveled a great deal. We went to Europe a lot. And we even rode a lot in Europe by in rented apartments and flats. And we lived in my sister's house in The Hague, that's Holland, a great deal. She and her husband, a flugelhorn player, were living in Berlin. And we lived in their house in The Hague when they were away through several winters. It was wonderful. And I'm very comfortable. Neil loves living abroad. And I'm very good at languages. So wherever we go, I, I, I'm happy. What was it like being with the same person for 58 years? Heaven. Well, he never changed. He did get, he turned into a little old man, but he was always, he never stopped doing his exercises. And he always had that gorgeous ass from riding horses, I think. <laughs> he really knew horses. <laughs> so you were about eight years apart and he passed away two years ago. Do you mind saying what? caused the end. We were in Berlin when Hurricane Sandy hit and uh, West Beth was flooded. We came back just as the power came back on, but it was full of, as it dried out, it was full of mold. He had eczema on his feet, which is an entry point for things like fungus and mold. It was a long time and he started breaking out in sores on his feet. At first, it was diagnosed one thing, and finally, it was diagnosed as lymphoma, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So he got cancer from it. He was treated very rottenly, I think, by NYU. The cancer doctor there gave him chemotherapy because he said it had reached his glands. And the chemotherapy made him break out in worse sores, and he was in a wheelchair for almost a year. It was a terrible five-year period of his decline. We went to Sloan Kettering, and they gave him radiation on his feet so we could stand up again. It was wonderful how we stood up after being in a wheelchair. Of course, I had to do everything for him, even more than usual. He never really regained too much mobility, but we did go to Europe. And we went to Berlin again. When we came home, he was declining, and it came back, and there was no escape from it. And he finally lost a little bit of sight he had, and then he lost his hearing, and then he collapsed. And so uh, he died at the Veterans Hospital, and I came home, and the first thing I did was throw myself down on the bed and say, what a relief. Ah, oh, it was. Because? I had been working my ass off, doing everything. for You know, I had to do everything. He was bedridden, and I just kept going. And then I didn't, of course, then I didn't have him anymore. Was there a delayed reaction to that loss? The first year of, of being alone, all the women in the neighborhood stopped me and said, the first year is the worst. They were all widows. Right? And because then I noticed they were coming on to me because I was an available man. Very strange. Anyway, the first year was terrible. And the second year has been, um, well, the thing is, being one thing about being this old, I mean, he died when I was 94, and now I'm 95, 
it's the second year, and it's um, really quite a, I feel I have him again. And of course, I whack off to it. His picture and his, I have more intimate pictures of him that I took even when he didn't know I was doing it. So I really have quite a collection, and I feel very connected to him now. What's it like, you know, being 95, having had a partner for 58 years and now being alone for the last two? You know, God willing, we're all going to get to that place in life and hopefully reach your age in the same fit condition you are. I have had a wonderful life. I can't complain. I mean, so the, the end of it, I'm on my own. But I live in this wonderful place. I have trees out the window, green. I'm in a bay, embraced by the trees. And I still have my dick. And sexual pleasure is terribly important in old age. It's one of the great things to have. And, of course, I have my career. Now I have a movie coming out of a poem I wrote about when I was uh, in the war. My plane crashed in the North Sea. I wrote a narrative poem about it that has now been made into a movie, and it's just about to be released. Did they have a name for what that is so people can search for it? My poem was called World War Two because I didn't really have a name. But um, it's been given a better title called A Minor Accident of War. I'm going to be in another movie on PBS in the spring about veterans. So I really get a lot of attention. I mean, I'm not without it. And my friends are all dying, unfortunately. That is terrible. Do you feel like you need people less at your age or just as much? Just as much. The wonderful thing, but the wonderful thing is, here I'm alone in this apartment, though I like being in the atmosphere of where I, Neil and I lived. He'll always be with me. And I must confess, he's talking to me now. Wow. He likes the sound of my voice, so I talk to him. I know it's crazy. I must say I'm a total unbeliever, but this has happened. Do you hear his voice in your head? No, he can't speak, but I hear his, what he says. Okay. And he said he likes the sound of my voice. Wow. So, but I don't believe any of this, and yet it's happening. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, oh, what I'm saying is, here, are, of course, I'm with Neil here, but mostly alone. And I go outside, and this building is so wonderful. I meet friends and people I like all over the place, all in the lobby, on the streets. We have a wonderful park up in the square where I meet people I know. I go out and I'm with people. I'm going to share with our listeners, after we'd had a few meetings, I called you up on Sunday, I think it was around June 23rd or so. And so today is the Folsom Street East Street Fair, which is a bunch of leather-type gay men all wandering up and down these two long blocks in Chelsea. And would you have any interest for me to come down and your apartment and we take a taxi over there and I'll walk around with you for a half hour or an hour or as long as you might like and then I'll take you back in a taxi <laughs> to your apartment and I, I have to share your answer you said Mike I'm tickled pink do you think I might be interested in that <laughs> but I'm going to go hang out with my friends in Abington Square <laughs> yeah the building has a series called West Beth Icons and I was an icon uh, last year or two years ago um, when they made a film about me and we had a program in the community room. And the whole thing is on, on um, Vimeo, 
under Westbeth icons, Edward Field. So they can find that. If Anybody can see it. It's a really a terrific. So look at Westbeth icons on Vimeo, Edward Field. Yeah. That sounds, uh, I'm going to definitely look at it myself. <laughs> I've already seen the first half of the animated version of his poem from World War II, and it's fascinating. I just, re- I, you know, is your poem available anywhere online for people to read? Uh, I don't know if it's online. It's It's been republished in a Poets of World War II by the Library of America. And they are going to do a blog about the movie. They even made the poem a story of the week one one week. Well, it's a fascinating story about how Edward nearly perished and, frankly, is alive today only because of either the bravery or foolhardiness of somebody that was another person on that airplane, right? Yeah, somebody gave his life for me. Right. So, at any event, I think this is probably a good point to stop for today. We'll have one or two more sessions coming up soon uh, where we'll talk about Edward's life growing up in Lindbrook, Long Island, uh, and what it was like having gay sex as a teenager in the 1930s. Please keep listening. Thanks for joining us. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more stories, go to bammer.co. 